Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to encounter you in these, in these texts of Scripture. I pray that you will help us, Lord Jesus, to uh, experience the, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us to bring to us the truth of the relationship and the power of the relationship that we have with you through Christ. In your name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be, um, uh, we'll be attending to the gospel, um, Luke chapter 17. And um, this is a really interesting text. Those of you who have been in the church for a while may, may be familiar with this one, you know, telling trees to go into the sea or mountains. Some people are familiar with that from the other gospel passages that you can say to this mountain be removed. If I had faith to move mountains, you know, it's kind of an expression um, but as with so many of the words of Jesus, you know, when you start to kind of examine them a little bit, they're a little hard to, to really fathom and understand until we kind of work at it, which is the point, actually, of a, of a parable. It's to get you to dig a little, a little bit. Now, Jesus, uh, at this stage in the gospel, is in the Galilean part. Now, if you, I love a map of Israel because it's basically got two lines that go like that. Like, even people like me can find their way around the country because it's so simple. Um, And the Sea of Galilee is in the north, and uh, Jerusalem is south of that. And basically, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' ministry is divided up into these kind of two geographical locations. The Galilee region's his hometown, and uh, that's where people know him, and that's where he does uh, a lot of his teaching ministry. And then uh, when he discerns uh, from God that it's time to, um, uh, the time of crucifixion approaches, then he travels down to Jerusalem, and that's where things get really intense. Of course, Jesus travels a little bit back and forth uh, you know, throughout his life. But essentially, it's easy to think of the Gospels in those kind of two big chunks. And when he's in the Galilee region, okay, this is a, these are villages and, and towns around the area, mostly f- uh, people who are um, earning their living by fishing on the Sea of Galilee or farming or working in some of the other towns nearby. And... Um, and uh, there's a lot of family business going on. So usually when you're following Jesus around Galilee, you'll find three groups of people. You'll find his disciples, which uh, sometimes are larger than just the disciples that we mean, you know, the 12 disciples. There's also other disciples that are following around too. So he's got his group of followers. Then he's got the crowds, just people in general who are hearing about Jesus and want to see what's going on, and they they heard he can heal people, and so they're bringing people for healing and and for deliverance of various kinds. And then you have this group of religious people called the Pharisees. And they're a little hard to understand um, unless you kind of, you know, well, you know, Internet's great now. You can read all about the Pharisees on Wikipedia or whatever, and that's a good place to start. The Pharisees are, uh, they are, are uh, people who have uh, dedicated themselves to, to studying God's word and are looked at in their community as having uh, intelligence about it. They're, they're kind of like scholars um, or teachers, and the Pharisees um, have a kind of a point of view, all right? They, as you can imagine, a little bit like politics, you know, you, you, everybody can read the U.S. Constitution, but not everybody reads it the same way. And that's why you have political parties. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those groups, they're a little bit like that. They're reading the Bible, but they interpret it differently. And just like, you know, in our 
uh, context, uh, the differences sometimes between the political parties can be quite vociferous or loud and aggravated. The same could be true back then too. So Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he was speaking to his crowd, and he was speaking to the Pharisees, sometimes all at the same time. And that's important to remember, why is Jesus saying what he's saying? Oftentimes it's because he's addressing one particular group particularly. All right, so he may have a different message to his disciples and a different message to the crowd and a different message to the Pharisees, and you'll see him sometimes doing that. Uh, he'll, he'll tell a parable that upsets the Pharisees, and then later on the, the, his disciples will say, hey, Jesus, could you explain that to us a little bit? You know, they, that kind of aggravated them a little bit, and, and frankly, I'm confused too. And Jesus will explain it, uh, you know, to the, the disciples that way. So in our context here, Jesus is still up in the Galilee region when he's sharing this teaching. And you'll see that if you read the chapters before chapter 17, he's kind of moving in and out of these groups, his disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees. And he's just got done, if, if you recall from last week and, and just if you poke around the end of chapter 16 there, Jesus just got done telling this amazing story about poor Lazarus who dies and, and experiences kind of the joy of being with his people and in, in Abraham's bosom, it's called. Whereas the rich guy, he dies and he ends up in a bad place. All right? And... Um, and the rich guy ends up saying to Abraham, you know, he kind of calls out and says, hey, can, can you send somebody to tell my brothers that it's not so good down here? <laughs> they should change their ways. And, um, and the response is, if they, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, here's, here's, what, here's what's being said. They have Torah, they have the riches of God's word, what we call the Old Testament, the law of Moses. They have that. And that's powerful and that's rich. And it's not gonna change anything even if somebody were to rise from the dead. They, in fact, Jesus did rise from the dead and they, that didn't change anything, right? So we have the evidence. <laughs> People who didn't wanna believe didn't believe any easier just because Jesus rose from the dead, believe it or not. And this is, this is the, the point I want to make here. This allusion to they have Moses and the prophets, that's directed at the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees pride themselves on their expertise in interpreting Moses, a shorthand for the Torah or the Old Testament, the, the writings that God gave Moses. So Jesus ends chapter 16 with a pointed statement to the people who perceive themselves as experts and he's saying you don't read Moses rightly you you don't get it on the very thing that you're harboring as as a source of great personal pride you're confused on that very thing uh, this is the reason why I'm sharing this with you then Jesus moves forward towards our section and he says this in chapter 17, verse 1, he says to his disciples, okay, now he's going to explain a little bit. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, this word temptations to sin can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, it can be referring to stumbling blocks or obstacles, okay? So what Jesus is saying, look, 
in your life of faith, he's saying to the disciples, there are gonna be obstacles and stumbling blocks, temptations to sin that make it difficult for you to experience the truth of knowing me. And you ought not to be the kind of people who participate in that. You shouldn't be putting obstacles in people's way. All right, who's doing that? That's what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are putting obstacles in people's way so that it's making that it harder for them to perceive the teaching of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What kind of obstacles are they putting in the way? That's my introduction into our text here. The, the disciples are concerned all right, here Jesus has just given this challenge to the Pharisees that you don't interpret Moses rightly. In fact, you're putting obstacles in people's way. Now, the disciples rightly, even Jesus would say, have a lot of respect for the teaching of the Pharisees. And the the disciples want to know, well, are we going to put obstacles in people's way? I mean, if the Pharisees aren't getting it right, how, how, maybe we're not getting it right. That's why they say, Lord, increase our faith. Hear it this way, increase our faithfulness. The, the, the disciples are not asking sometimes what we, we sometimes ask when we think about increasing our faith. We're, we're asking for like, help us to do miracles or something like that. Th- that's not what the disciples are asking. They're saying, God has given Israel a mission to bear witness to the presence of God. Every faithful Jew wants to participate well in that mission. Every faithful Jew wants to say we are God-fearing, obedient, faithful Israel. That's our call. That's what we want to do. We want to be assured in in, in, in our vocation Now, the Pharisees are coming along just like pastors do and say, we're gonna share with you how you can do that well. It turns out they're failing. So the disciples are saying, Lord, increase our faithfulness. Give us the capacity to succeed in the way that the Pharisees are failing. We're no better. How can we be faithful? Lord, increase our faithfulness. That's what brings us to our text. And this is what Jesus will want to, Jesus Jesus seldom just gives simple answers. And there's a reason why. He wants to help us actually not just simply cave into uh, our, our misperceptions, which we're prone to do, of course. We're human. And Jesus says, he says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could be able to tell the mulberry bush, which is much larger, jump into the sea and it would happen. So what do we make of this? Now, paradoxically, upon examination of my own interaction with this, here's how I've always heard this, okay? See if it rings true with you. Jesus says to the disciples, if you had the faith of a mulberry bush, you could tell the mulberry bush to jump into the sea. In other words, somehow, the way I hear these things is, Lord, I've got this massive obstacle in my life. And if I had more faith, 
I could overcome that obstacle. But is Jesus telling them to have more faith? He's saying exactly the opposite. (laughs) Do you see? I mean, how many times have I read this verse and what I feel like is I need more faith. If I had more faith, I could tell that mulberry bush to jump into the sea. If I had more faith, I could tell that mountain to jump into the sea. How do I get it so wrong? (laughs) Jesus is saying the opposite. All right, so when I see a mountain in my life, a massive obstacle, I think, gosh, if I had more faith, I could do something about that. Well, so let's just say what Jesus says again. He's not saying to have more faith. He's not saying to have faith the size of a mountain or faith the size of a mulberry bush. That's the whole point. That's why we have to read these things over and over again. Maybe you're much faster than I am and maybe you don't struggle with this. (laughs) Jesus is not saying have more faith. He's saying have this much faith. Like a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. That's the contrast. So in this illustration, this is an illustration of proportion. Jesus is saying mustard seeds are super small. Mulberry bushes are really big. All you need is this tiny little bit of faith and you could have an impact on that that, blue, that uh, mulberry bush. I think we had a mulberry bush near our house once, one time. Uh, it was some kind of bush that started with an M. That's what my brother John told me. It was like mulberry or mulberries, or I can't remember what. It was big. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and we would go and, and we would get massively blue. That's why I say blueberry in my mind because we'd eat these little berries and it was wonderful and delightful. Um, in any case, Jesus is not saying, he's saying, He's saying, I want you to have a different kind of faith altogether. The, the, the disciples say, increase our faithfulness. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have a different kind of faith altogether. I don't want you just to say, here's what the Pharisees are doing, now you do it better. What are the Pharisees doing? What is the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about? Well, certainly, if Jesus is saying you only need a little tiny bit of faith, it puts the question back onto the the disciples saying, well, what, what are you talking about? Well, one thing we can see is that the kind of faith Jesus is talking about certainly is very powerful. I mean, you have agency. Jesus is saying to the disciples, in this kind of faith, you're the prime mover. You're the one that's doing something. You're, you're participating in that tree moving from here to there. You, you have a vision. You have a, you, have a, you have a sight of something. You know that tree's not supposed to be there, and so you tell it to move, and it does. You, you have a self-directed, visionary agency. That means you're participating. In, you are part of the solution to the problem. That's amazing. This isn't passive, it's not reactive, it's not helpless. This kind of faith is somehow very dynamic and active. Now, this is where the rub comes. Because the Pharisees, the challenge to the Pharisees and the obstacle to the Pharisees is what Jesus, I think, is going to say in our next section. I think that's why Luke put this here. 
Um, sometimes the gospel writers will take collections of Jesus' sayings and they'll arrange them. It doesn't necessarily mean it happened exactly in this order. Sometimes you can tell that the gospel writer wants to emphasize something of Jesus' sayings right here. And I think this is a case. There's a reason why Luke puts this parable right here. And I think it has to do with this issue, which is that the Pharisees are self-seeking. They are self-justifying. They, they are performance-oriented. And what I mean by that is they want to act and in their action receive praise for their activity. And that kills grace. That destroys faith. It undermines relationships. It is absolutely barren and fruitless as a way to live. And it's what we are compelled to do without God's help. Every single one of us. We want desperately to earn our salvation. We want to be the ones that rise up and receive the accolade for the thing that we do. And what does it lead to? it leads to all kinds of distortion. The Pharisees are not able to see Jesus even if he's standing before them. And you can, there are all kinds of stories about that which you may be familiar with. You know, Jesus is doing his best to bring the good news of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to prostitutes and tax collectors and poor people and needy people and sick people, people just like us, and the obstacle comes with the Pharisees who say, why are you doing that? And why are you doing that? And why are you talking to this person? And don't you know that that person's, you know, she slept around? And that guy, he's a tax collector and a fraud. You know, if you were a righteous man, you wouldn't hang out with that. And, and Jesus said, no, if you were a righteous man, you would. And so we are like the Pharisees so often we want to justify ourselves. Self-justifying is our impulse to explain ourselves and to say, I, there's a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, so, so get off my back. It's the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of receiving by grace what God wants to give us as a gift. And that's why Jesus really hits this hard because he knows that, I mean, if you want to put it in this, this is the mulberry tree for Jesus. The mulberry tree for Jesus is our self-justifying, self-seeking pride. And he's going to want that mulberry tree of our pride to be thrown into the sea so that the pathway to him is clear and open and free. And so he tells this story which to an American's ear sounds all wrong. All right, well, any one of you who has a servant, order him around, and then at the very end, does he thank the servant? And an American will say, absolutely. <laughs> like, if I'm giving my 360 performance review on Jesus, I'd say, Jesus never thanked me. This guy is, he has, shows no gratitude. I mean, Jesus would fail the performance review if he were an American. That's not the point of this particular parable. In other places in scripture, Jesus is very clear about the value that we have in God. 
God, and I'll, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, I'll emphasize that point again, all right? So that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is to remove, with surgical precision, the obstacle of pride. And that's why it makes us feel a little irritated, all right? Because he says, which servant will, f- you know, or which master will thank the servant? And we want to hear him say, well, of course, he would thank the servant, but he doesn't. Because that's not, the servant wouldn't even understand it that way. A servant authentically is okay with this arrangement, especially in the ancient world. Now, in the ancient world, this was a very common relationship. The very common relationship. In the ancient world, you you had kings and subjects. You had, uh, you had patrons and servants. You, you had a collaboration between those who had means and authority and those who served them, and that was okay. It could be complicated, and that's why we have all kinds of words about it, but that was a familiar arrangement. This servant wasn't a, like, when we think of slavery, we're thinking about the, the horrible devastation of American slavery. It's, this is not that. This is a servant who's in the employ of a master. And it's, it, it's not a culture that we're very familiar with, but the servant would have expected this, okay? He would have expected proper treatment, okay? But in the way that Jesus tells parables, you'll often find him doing this. It's called the lesser to the greater, all right? If a wicked judge knows how to do this, how much more will a good judge do this? If a bad father knows how to do this, how much more will a good father do this? That's a very common technique in parables, and you'll see Jesus saying, if this happens here in the worst of circumstances, well, God is so much better, it's gonna be even greater. That's the lesser to the greater. And Jesus is saying, look, here's a situation where you have a master and a servant, and this is how it works. How much greater is it gonna be in the kingdom of heaven? So consider what we would, might be more familiar to us. Consider a classroom, and you ever call somebody a brown noser? I know that's kind of an older term, but I think we still kind of know what that is. Somebody who sucks up, right? Now, a brown noser does the right thing, Look at that, look at that brown noser cleaning the chalkboard. You know, I know we don't have chalkboards anymore, but see, I'm showing my age. <laughs> All right. You know, the whiteboard, erasing the whatever, the cleaning the whiteboard. Yeah. You know, what's wrong with cleaning the whiteboard? Why don't we celebrate that? But we know there's an alternative, ulterior, ulterior motive. You know, he or she is doing that in order to get points with a teacher. Brown noser. Do you see how different that is? I mean, it's good that the whiteboard, you know, thank you. But, but you know there's something wrong about thanking that person because that's what they wanted. They did it for themselves. You see how that just destroys the, you know, the classroom dynamics? Nobody likes that. Nobody likes a brown noser. You know, the, the guy at work that's, you know, in front of the boss, oh, he's just all, you know, all s- sweet and helpful and, 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 and loves to spread the love around and say thank you, but when the boss is not looking, then that person's no good. You know, nobody likes that because you just know that's not the way it's done. That's what's going on here. 
But look what we actually see happening with a servant. This servant is actually incredibly productive. Um, this servant is fruitful. This servant is engaged. This servant is, is plowing, tending sheep, stewarding the property, preparing the meal, dressing appropriately, cultivating not only the soil and the flock, but also the homestead. I mean, this is a very important person. This master just sits there. I, I don't know what the master does. All right, he's got the money. But when you look at the fruitfulness and the, the, the benefit and the agency, the, the capacity of the servant, it's enormous. Every important thing that happens in this parable is done by the servant, not by the master. That servant is an agent of the master. That servant is, in, uh, is stewarding the master's resources. Now, in this parable, the limit is the, the, there's not an apparent, like, emotionally engaged relationship between the master and the servant. And that's the difference between what Jesus is explaining, between what he's telling in the parable and what we have with him. Because even more than just the master, we serve a living God, a God who has given us access to him by doing all of the things that the servant did. Who, who is the great shepherd? It's Jesus. Who is the one that, that, that plants the seed of the gospel and tends it until it grows and bears fruit? That's Jesus. Who is it that himself stripped himself at the table and served the disciples by washing their feet? It's Jesus does that. Jesus has done all of this. How could he do it, even to the point of suffering and dying on the cross? And he never, ever ceased to, to experience God's joy in it, not a single day. The author of Hebrews says it, he, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and suffered the shame. How could he do that? That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants to give us. And it's not something we get by being self-aggrandizing or, or promoting ourselves or something different that's required. And this is what we see in the servant. The servant at the end says, at the end, we are unworthy servants. Now, remember the context and the point of this. Jesus is not trying to say, you've got to just, you know, be down on yourself. Remember how this would sound to the ears of the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to say, we are worthy servants. And because they say that, they are obstructed from knowing the grace and power and salvation of Jesus Christ because of that and that alone. It's killing them. Jesus says, if you could just see that you're unworthy servants, even in the expert fulfillment of the law that you have, even if you've done everything right, your inability to say that I'm an unworthy servant is keeping you from my grace and love and mercy. 
you may remember the story of, of, the, uh, of the Pharisee and, and, and the sinner praying together. And the Pharisee is saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that other guy, this sinner over here. And the sinner is saying, I am an unworthy servant. Do you remember that story? And Jesus said, which one of them went home justified? Well, of course, it's the one who is able to say with his mouth, I am unworthy. That person received grace. Do you remember the two thieves on the cross? One thief said, you know, he complained, moaned and groaned, and was critical of Jesus. The other guy said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified next to you. Which one joined Jesus in glory? They both could have, but one was able to acknowledge that I'm an unworthy servant. Why is that? How can that possibly be? And here's the heart of the matter. It can possibly be because the Pharisees have not experienced a relationship with God. They have not worshipped the real God that's there, and the others have. It's an actual relationship that is the qualitative difference between these various kinds of faith, so to speak. What makes the faith of the mustard seed different than the, than the faith of the Pharisees? It's because one person's faith is based in a knowledge of God. It's based in an experience of God's grace. Who can possibly stand before God really and justify themselves? If you can, it's simply another way of saying, I've really never met God before. A person who's really met God knows that, number one, they can't justify themselves. And number two, knows that they don't need to. That's the knowledge of God. I can't, and I don't have to. That is freedom. That's what we see in the cross. We see a God who is, on the one hand, so good in his holiness and so good in his mercy. He's taken care of the thing that we can't take care of in our own hearts. We can't justify ourselves. And if we get into a bind, when we see that mulberry bush or we see that mountain before us and we cannot overcome it, it's an indication that there's still more about God that we need to understand. It's not a criticism. We get afraid about all kinds of things. Life is a terrible mystery sometimes. It ends. That in itself is nerve-wracking. There's not a human being that can get all the loose ends tied up before they die. It's just not going to happen. And that creates angst in us. It creates sadness and loss, and it creates mountains, and it creates mulberry bushes. I don't like saying mulberry bushes because it seems too tame. <laughs> I like mulberry bushes. <laughs> use the word mountains. It creates obstacles, things that are deeply rooted that we can't seem to uproot. That's the mulberry bush. You just can't get it out of the ground. The mountain, of course, is just impenetrable. We can't get around it. And Jesus says, that's because you don't know me well enough yet. I'm bigger than the mountain. I'm deeper than the roots of the mulberry tree. And not only that, but when you know that, by knowing me, you will actually participate in the solution your very self it's not just a matter of sitting back and hoping things work out. We get back to the very start of the thing, which is the, the, uh, the disciples are saying, Lord, increase our faithfulness. 
Increase our capacity to participate in the mission. Give us the strength to make a difference. Help us know how we can engage in this world the way that you called us to engage. Give us a vision that, that, that exceeds our capacity because we know that's what you're calling us to, but we can't seem to do it. And with God, we can. With God, we see something bigger than the mountain. We see something deeper than the roots of the mulberry bush, and we can participate in it. And that's how I want to end today is to ask you, what are the mulberry bushes and mountains in your life? They're not going to get solved apart from you. That's the scary part. They seldom do. God's not saying, I'm going to do something apart from you. He's saying, I'm going to do something through you. I get nervous when I hear that, do you? Certain part of me that wants him to do it without me. But that's my mulberry bush. That's my mountain. That's where I want to ask the Lord, because I know he's gracious, increase my faithfulness not by waving a magic wand, but by giving me a deeper experience of you. You're the one that makes the difference. You're the one that gives me strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and there is no strength apart from the joy of knowing him. That's what I want. Lord, help me to see you the way you want to be seen. Help me to see other people the way that you see them. Give me a kind of a rest in the, in the calling that you've given me to say to these things in my life, Lord, you're wanting me to make a difference in you and through you, to know that with you, I'm an unworthy servant, but with you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen.